0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist.
1: If you buy something, whether it's a tractor or a cell phone or a computer, you would think you have the right to fix it.
0: Unfortunately, the companies would like to maintain a monopoly on repair. It's the core problem that crosses all these industries is that You don't own what you think you own, and you don't have the rights you're supposed to have. We take offense to that, and we're trying to get our rights back. The basic consumer right to fix something that you own and not to be locked out electronically. And so right now, we're just hovering around in a gray zone, importing hacked software from different countries trying to fix our junk. The right to repair, whether consumer electronics, farm machinery, or even health and medical equipment, is an issue that seemingly everyone can relate to. Given the implications for consumer and property rights, the sustainability of the agricultural sector, and protecting the environment, ensuring a right to repair would seem like an obvious political winner. Yet the issue was lagged, not the least of which is because of restrictive copyright laws that can limit the ability to repair personal property. Aaron Perzanowski is a law professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law in Cleveland, Ohio and the Associate Director of the Spangenberg Center for Law Technology and the Arts. Professor Perzanowski is the author of the forthcoming book, Right to Repair, to be published by Cambridge University Press early next year. He joins me on the podcast to explain why the right to repair matters, how copyright fits into all of this, and what reforms are needed to address the issue. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to have you on. First off, congratulations on the forthcoming book on the right to to repair. It'll be published by Cambridge University Press in just a matter of months. And, you know, it's it's on a topic that I think we can all relate to. Repair is something that uh, I think we've all had to experience, in my own case, Sort of the, more, the more recent uh, sources of frustration involved a very expensive oven radar uh, range that. Uh, I was told could not be repaired because the company simply ceased to produce the control panel that was needed to make this thing run. And there was simply no other alternative but to replace it, which was you know, bad for the environment and, and bad for my pocketbook. Uh, and so I mean, that's pretty common, though, I think. And few of us take the time, though, to think about the consumer rights issues, the environmental issues, much less the intellectual property, such as copyright issues that come up in these kinds of contexts. So, you know, I'd like to explore all of those sorts of things, but want to... to start by asking, I suppose, you know, what prompted you to write a book on the right of repair?
1: So, you know, prior to this book, a lot of my research is really focused on questions of ownership, and especially ownership in a digital economy. So I wrote a book called The End of Ownership um, several years ago now with uh, my frequent collaborator, Jason Schultz. And we covered a lot of those sorts of issues in, in a great deal of depth. And We touched on repair in that book, but sort of as the years passed, I thought the issue of repair really kind of deserved a a fuller exploration. Um, You know, and as you mentioned, repair, it touches on the environment and consumer protection and IP law and antitrust um, and sort of the history of industrialization. And so telling that story really required sort of a book length treatment rather than, you know, say writing a, a law review article or something along those lines. So I thought I thought the book was really the only way to tell the whole story.
0: Okay, no, that makes sense. It's certainly for, once people have the chance to take a look at the book, you were kind enough to provide me um, with a, an early version. It really does trace historically uh, through so many of these kinds of issues. Uh, I thought we, we might get into some of the consumer concerns as a start and then later get into some of the IP issues. And obviously, there's, there's cost issues. There's how there may be deliberate design to create a limited lifespan on products. Now, you, your book emphasizes how this plays out in the electronics space with a particular focus on Apple. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, those issues, especially when it comes to one of the electronics giants such as Apple?
1: Yeah, so, you know, Apple, I think, is representative of a lot of companies that make consumer electronic devices. I mean, the scale is different, right, because Apple is just such an important player uh, in, in that space. But Apple, like lots of other companies, has a really strong financial incentive to exert control over the markets for repair of their products, Right. Apple wants to sell as many iPhones as it can every quarter. Um, Apple does lots of different things. They make lots of different products. They're trying to you know, break into uh, television streaming and music subscriptions. But fundamentally, Apple is a company that makes iPhones. That's where the bulk of its profits come from. Um, and if iPhones are cheap and easy to repair, that means they last longer. That means we buy fewer of them. Um, this is not a secret, right? Apple has admitted this basic logic um, in communications to its shareholders. When repairs increase, sales and revenue decrease. Uh, and so, you know, as I said, they have a really strong incentive to, to convince consumers to buy new products and to buy them as you know frequently as they can. Um, So Apple, like lots of other companies, they've developed a set of strategies that make repair less available, less attractive uh, than replacing an old device with a new one, right? So part of this is about the design of the product. You use glue and you use solder um, and you make it really difficult to uh, replace components. You use exotic screws that make it harder to open up a device, um, companies have started serializing parts uh, so that they can't be swapped out. You can't just take an equivalent part from an existing device, plug it into your machine, and expect it to work. Um, the economics here, I think, make a big uh, a big impact. Companies oftentimes charge incredibly high prices for parts or for repair services. Sometimes as you were describing, they just refuse to sell parts or perform repairs at all. That might be because they literally don't have the parts in stock, or it might be because of a company policy that says after five years or after seven years, we've rendered these devices obsolete. And even if we could repair them, our policy says we don't. Um, So there's there's a whole bunch of strategies that we see companies relying on on out there in the marketplace um, that really make it difficult for consumers to avail themselves of repair, even if they want to. Yeah, so
0: that's the that's the consumer side of the story. And as I say, I think it's one that a lot of us can relate to. One of the things that, that I think is really interesting about these issues, and, and we've seen it cropped up in Canada as part of the, the copyright issues that we'll discuss soon enough, is that it's been other sectors that have been just as focused on this issue. For example, the agricultural sector, the farming communities have been very vocal. In some ways, they've been the most vocal, at least in Canada, around the right to repair. Your book even touches on the delivery of essential services such as healthcare and how that can be implicated. Can you talk a little bit about how this is an issue that, you know, one can understand how the consumer implications come to the fore, but it extends far beyond just that?
1: Yeah, I think this issue of repair touches on really every sector of the economy and every aspect of modern life in some ways. Um, A lot of the techniques that I just described that enable these repair restrictions, right, having functionality that's defined by software, having DRM locked component parts, um, those techniques are ubiquitous. Um, We see them, for example, in agricultural equipment, John Deere tractors, uh, for example. Um, You know, farmers who wanna repair their tractors themselves or they wanna rely on local repair shops that they may have utilized in their local communities for decades, for generations. um, Those farmers still have to pay the local John Deere dealer to come out to their farms and initialize authentic John Deere parts using proprietary software. So you're a farmer, you go out and you buy a component that you need that you know needs to be replaced uh, on your tractor. You put it on yourself or you pay, you pay the local mom and pop shop to do it. It's not going to function until a John Deere technician comes with their laptop, connects it to your You know, million dollar tractor and basically blesses this new component, even though it's an authentic, you know, OEM part. Um, That I think demonstrates like the power that software really has to interfere with very long standing practices around repair. And we think of farmers as being largely self-sufficient. We think of them as being people that, you know, understand in a really intimate way, how their equipment, how their machinery works. Uh, And despite that knowledge, right, they are prevented from engaging in, you know, this, this longstanding practice of repair. The economics are a little bit different in the agricultural space, right? John Deere, like your local car dealer, Um, actually makes as much money or more money from service and maintenance than they do from selling new equipment. They know if they sell you a tractor for a million dollars, it needs to last for a long time. They know it's going to need to be repaired. They're not trying to convince you to replace it with a new one every two years, the way Apple is with the iPhone. But John Deere wants to capture the value of that repair market for itself, Uh, and so you can see these strategies as as a way to make that happen. Um, As you mentioned, we've seen similar kinds of fights um, play out in in the medical space, especially during the pandemic. Um, we've seen ventilators and other essential equipment that needed to be repaired, but manufacturers simply didn't have the capacity to do it themselves. And so hospitals were relying on, you know, independent third party, uh, in some cases, um medical technicians, but they couldn't get their hands on parts, they couldn't get their hands on software, uh, they couldn't get their hands on diagnostic information uh, that would have enabled them to easily keep these machines up and running. Um, And so, you know, it's one thing if You got to pay more money than you wanted to to get the cracked screen fixed on your smartphone. It's quite another when we're talking about like genuine life or death situations uh, where people are being prevented from from repairing this uh, essential medical equipment.
0: Oh, Without doubt, I mean, the implications are are enormous there. They're also really big, I think, from an environmental perspective. Obviously, this forced obsolescence means that there's a lot of Perfectly good products that that end up going into landfill, presumably, uh, as part of this. Can you touch a little bit on on some of the environmental implications of of these kind of, of essentially these kinds of systems that are are leading to replacement as opposed to repair?
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, the the most obvious harms here are at the end of the product life cycle, right? When we replace devices rather than repairing them, that leads to more and more electronic waste. And and the numbers here are like genuinely staggering. Um, In the United States, um, we throw out something like 400,000 mobile phones a day in this country. Um, consumer electronics account for something like 50 million tons of waste a year. And electronic waste is particularly problematic, right? It, it contains like lead and arsenic and mercury, right? That's, that's a real issue. Now, some of these problems, I think, can be addressed through increased recycling, right? Rather than things going into landfills, companies like Apple uh, are encouraging recycling because they want to reuse some of these uh, components uh, that, that are found in discarded devices. Um, and that helps reduce some of the harms on the front end as well. I think, you know, people forget that these, you know, sleek electronic devices that we carry around in our pockets, the components to make them are, you know, wrested from the earth, right? They are They're mined from Uh, this planet. And so, you know, we produce something like 1.5 billion phones every year, and that requires mining gold and mining copper and a whole slew of rare earth metals uh, that are really difficult to get at. Um, And the process of mining and refining those materials is incredibly environmentally destructive not to mention you know, the smelters and the factories and the shipping vessels that we rely on to get these products into the hands of, of consumers. So it is like difficult to overstate the environmental harms. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of us as, as consumers have like a vague awareness of, but I do think it's worth centering it in this discussion to really remind people of, of, of some of the kind of long-term stakes of, uh, of these policy decisions.
0: So so it is a really helpful discussion on both some of the the environmental implications and as well as, of course, the consumer impact that this has. But, you know, longtime listeners of this podcast will wonder, well, interesting enough, but, you know, what does this have to do with some of the digital policies, the IP related policies that are are typically a, a core part of the discussion? And in this context, we do end up with issues around. Uh, copyright in particular, uh, which may take some people by surprise, but it crops up in a number of different ways. Um, why don't we start with the some of the discussion in the book around how copyright has been used to limit access to things like repair man- manuals or even in the, the naming of parts. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I'm a copyright person. That's how I came to this issue. And you're right; that connection, I think, is is not um, immediately obvious to people. But the way I think about it is this: fundamentally, copyright and and IP law generally, right? I talk in the book about copyright, but also, you know, patents and trade secrets and trademarks and lots of other uh, uh, sort of um, uh, legal tools. Um, they offer device makers really another set of strategies for restricting repair, right? Copyright is a tool, just like the design of the product is a tool that can be used to make repair easier or harder, right? Now I'm doubtful about the ultimate merits of some of these copyright related tools, but they do get deployed. And as you mentioned, the the first thing that we saw in this space was companies that tried and tried almost always unsuccessfully to assert copyright in their part numbers. And so the thinking is, um, look, if you don't get the part, you can't make the repair. And so if we can control access to information about what part you need, either you're gonna replace the device or you're gonna come to us and buy it from the manufacturer rather than from a competitor. So they tried to exert control over those part numbers. The courts had different rationales in those cases, but almost always found that either the part numbers were unoriginal or they were the product of some unprotectable system or process. So that strategy didn't work out uh, particularly well what we've seen more recently is companies are starting to assert copyright in their repair manuals. Uh, So they will put these documents together that include step-by-step instructions uh, for the diagnosis and repair of particular parts of a device. Um, That issue came up Um, In a really stark way, when a company called iFixit that sells replacement parts, but also um, creates uh, and hosts um, a vast array of sort of user-generated repair uh, processes, they created something called the Medical Device Repair Database, which was a collection of uh, manufacturers' repair manuals uh, for more than... I think something like 13,000 ventilators and other medical devices during the pandemic. So they gathered all this information, they posted it uh, online in order to make these repairs easier uh, for uh, independent uh, medical technicians to to engage in. Um, And some of the companies said, look, we've got a copyright in that manual. We don't want it included in this database. Um, If you've looked at these manuals, it's kind of tough to see uh, the uh, the protectable expression in them. Um, They are, as I said, a collection of step-by-step processes, um, processes that are typically outside of the scope of copyright protection. Even if there is a little bit of originality in the way those processes are written, you run into a sort of merger uh, problem, right? How do we separate? the underlying idea from the very limited forms of expression that will convey uh, that process clearly. Some courts have even found that straightforward photos or illustrations in the context of uh, parts and manuals may not be protected. Nonetheless, these claims are being made and in some cases have been made successfully not um, not litigated in court, but um, they've been asserted and we've seen people remove material as a result. Now, iFixit didn't remove these manuals uh, much to their credit, but other people uh, have felt that pressure and, and, and responded differently. And I think it's really important that we keep this information out there in the public because Without it, uh, repairs are are much much more difficult to uh, to to manage.
0: Sure. So, I mean that in, in a sense, you know, the restriction and access to something like a repair manual feels like for for most more of a conventional copyright related issue. Uh, and you raise the kinds of questions that typically get asked in that context about, you know, where does what what does copyright protect and and the implications of of seeking protection for that kind of work. But even beyond that, and, and certainly in, in my own case, the the way this sort of came to my attention has to do with any circumvention rules, which in Canada uh, was a major source of concern. It was one of the lead issues when we reformed our law back in 2012. And there was, even at that time, much discussion about the implications around uh, the implications for individuals and their rights to their personal property and the uh, the implications it would have for consumers. Can you talk a bit about how any circumvention rules play into this issue and why, they're, why they have a real-world implication or, or challenge when it comes to a right to repair, both for consumers as well as more broadly, as we talked about earlier, uh, in areas such as in the agricultural sector.
1: Yeah, I think this is the key copyright issue in this space, right? Um, and, And the concern here is that the functionality of all sorts of modern devices, right, from our cars to our home appliances, that functionality is defined and controlled by software. And typically that software is locked down in some fashion by a technological protection measure. Right, That makes it harder for consumers than to diagnose and to repair uh, their devices. Um, And so those those kinds of anti-circumvention rules, Uh, that the U.S. adopted uh, all the way back in in 1998 and that other nations, I think, regrettably uh, have adopted since then, create potential liability, not for copyright infringement, right? Nobody's worried that you're going to, like, download your uh, microwaves operating system and put it on the Internet for everyone to download and enjoy. but creates liability for simply kind of having the audacity as a consumer to take control of a device that you own. So if you remove or you bypass those digital locks, they're really designed to keep the consumer out of the loop uh, of the the device that they own, that is itself a source of of legal risk. So to, to give maybe an example here, um, well, let's say you want to swap out a broken optical drive on your PlayStation, right? You go out and you buy the appropriate part, you install it correctly, but the device won't recognize that new part because there's something in the software that tells it not to. Um, now, you might be able, and I stress might, you might be able to override that restriction, but doing so is going to require you to bypass the TPM that locks you out of the software, right? So there's nothing infringing about that behavior, um, but it does require the circumvention of uh, of that protection measure. And that that creates a sort of independent source of legal risk.
0: Yeah. Does, does the same issue play out for the farmer that we were talking about earlier that would want to repair the their John Deere tractor and uh, runs into, again, the same kind of code that if they seek to repair it, they have to bypass the code that itself becomes this kind of infringement?
1: So there, there is the same sort of scenario playing out there. One way that farmers have been sort of forced to work around those restrictions is uh, by downloading um, presumably illicit copies of John Deere's own uh, internal software from the dark web, right? They're going to these Ukrainian websites and downloading uh, what they believe to be the John Deere software so that they can now communicate with their own tractor. Um, I think that shows kind of a, a, a level of absurdity here that these are the lengths that farmers have to go to simply to um, repair their equipment with OEM parts, right? It, that That is... Um, it's a, a, a real sign that something has gone wrong in the way these, these laws have been implemented.
0: No, I think that's right. And I, and I think, you know, thinking about it from a Canadian perspective, there is a recognition increasingly, anyway, that, uh, that that something has gone wrong. There were warnings back when the anti-circumvention rules were passed in 2012 that this was a, a likely outcome, almost an inevitable outcome, given how these rules play out. And so we've had a copyright review a number of years ago where there were recommendations to address the issue. We've seen provincial governments begun, began, begin to pay some attention to it. And the Canadian government recently launched a consultation on some copyright reform issues that included this issue. So I'm curious about uh, how other countries have sought to address these kinds of issues, starting, I suppose, with the United States. Have there been any carve-outs around some of these issues in the United States?
1: So when Section 1201, which is where the anti-circumvention rules kind of live in, in the US code in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, when Section 1201 was enacted, there was, um, An understanding, right, that there would be a series of unintended consequences of this law, and that we wouldn't be able to imagine and to predict all of the sort of havoc that it might create. And so Congress included this rulemaking process, um, a rulemaking that takes place in the US Copyright Office every three years. Uh, The purpose of which is to identify um, potential exemptions from these anti circumvention rules. So if you can prove to the Copyright Office that DRM is interfering with a lawful use of a copyrighted work, you can be granted one of these temporary exemptions. And that process has been going on every three years uh, for, you know, for more than 20 years at this point. And in the last few cycles, the Copyright Office has recognized that repair is a lawful use of software code. And so it is granted a number of fairly narrow but slowly expanding exemptions for the repair of vehicles and medical equipment and most recently sort of a broad category of what they call consumer devices. Um, And I think that's a very positive step in the right direction, but it doesn't fully solve the problem that we've been discussing, right? These exemptions are temporary. You've got to go back every three years and ask again. And as a person that's participated in this process, I can tell you it requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of time, uh, and it is not an easy task. Um, The exemptions are often typically quite narrow. So, For the first time, uh, the most recent exemptions, which just came out here a couple of months ago, um, they include video game consoles, but you're only allowed to repair the optical drive of a video game console. Um, you You can't replace the flash drive or the power supply or any other component that might need fixing under the scope of this exemption. And I think that the most important limitation to keep in mind here is that these exemptions only apply to the act of circumvention itself. They don't allow you to make or to distribute tools that enable circumvention. So that means that every consumer or local repair shop is supposed to figure out how to circumvent these technologies on their own. They can't simply download a tool that someone else created that does it for them. And as a practical matter, that puts a really important limitation on the benefit of these exemptions. Um, I should also say the U.S. has some permanent statutory exceptions in the anti-circumvention rules. Um, but the ones in the statute you know, date back to 1998. They're sort of out of date in some respects. They're very narrowly tailored. I'd like to see a more permanent solution, um, not through this exemption process, but built into the statute itself that provides a broad exemption for repair. Um, there are some bills in the works in the United States that get close to doing that. And I believe there is a bill introduced in Canada that, that would do something similar. I think that's a better solution than this sort of, you know, temporary piecemeal approach that we've been uh, struggling with here over the past couple decades.
0: Yeah, know from a canadian perspective there have been some private members bills that have tried to move move in that direction and that's a response in part The fact that we don't even have the the review that you just described in the United States. And so Mm -hmm. it is open to our government to establish new exceptions. We do have some exceptions uh, by way of regulation, but that's something they have never done in the nearly 10 years that this has been part of the law. So that without having kind of even something that every three years forces uh, uh, the issue to be revisited, very little seems to happen yeah, uh, you know, the Canada and the United States are obviously not the only countries that have anti-circumvention rules on the books. Are, are there other countries that have, have attempted to address this issue as well, especially that intersection between anti-circumvention and right to repair?
1: So I think the other example that, that's worth talking about here is Europe, right? So in, in Europe, the the kinds of TPMs that we're talking about in this context, right, that, that relate to software. Um, fall within the scope of the software directive. Um, And the software directive doesn't actually prohibit the act of circumvention. It prohibits the circulation of what it calls the means of circumvention. Um, And so as we talked about a a minute ago, circumvention really depends on the availability of these sorts of tools so in europe we run into the same problem that we see in the us and elsewhere which is that even though you might have um, the 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 legal uh, ability to engage in circumvention that doesn't mean you have the practical skills or practical knowledge uh, to do so Um, it's also worth noting that that you know like Canada, um, in the EU, under the software directive, there is no mechanism along the lines of this US Copyright Office rulemaking uh, that would allow um, kind of newly arising problems to be uh, to be addressed. Um, I should also say, I think for anybody interested in, in kind of reading more about how these issues of TPMs and repair uh, play out in, in Europe specifically, there's a great uh, article uh, by uh, Anthony Rossborough called "Unscrewing the Future" that that addresses all of these questions uh, in in detail and that, that I found really helpful in my own research.
0: Okay, oh that's a, that's a great citation. I know Anthony's been active on some on, on the Canadian perspective on those issues as well. Yeah, um, you know, you know, one of the, you know, one of the responses that was raised back when. When Canada established some of the most restrictive anti-circumvention, was really modeled on, on the U.S. approach, was that this was a requirement of the WIPO Internet Treaties? And I know myself and many others argue that this was this was simply not the case; that there was far more flexibility built into the treaty. I guess I'm curious now that that we've seen some attempts that that to at least carve out some space in this area. Has there been any pushback from a, a treaty perspective? Was that was that just? simply FUD or just simply wrong in terms of trying to claim that you needed something that restrictive in order to comply with the treaty?
1: So as far as I know, there haven't been any challenges claiming that any of the exemptions that the U.S. has implemented through this rulemaking process uh, violate their obligations uh, under the the WIPO treaties. And that's certainly not true for any of the repair exemptions. the language around TPMs in the treaty, I think is fairly flexible if you read it, right? I mean, it basically requires adequate legal protection and effective remedies against circumvention. Um, like you, I don't think those obligations require the sort of you know, full bore approach of the DMCA. And I certainly don't see any reason That those obligations would be you know inconsistent with exceptions that you know basically basically permit what is otherwise lawful non-infringing behavior uh like repair um you know i also think it's important to keep in mind these anti-circumvention rules at least initially were supposed to have fairly narrow goals right they were supposed to encourage the digital distribution of music and movies by kind of backing these technological self-help mechanisms with some some legal teeth but that was a choice that has had you know far-reaching unintended consequences right these rules as they were um you know as as they were advocated for at the time you know, they weren't meant to keep you from fixing your tractor or repairing hospital ventilators or, you know, uh, keep you from replacing the ink cartridges in your printers. Um, The fact that these fights keep happening, that these issues keep uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, rearing their head, um, I think demonstrates just how overreaching these anti-circumvention rules really are.
0: No, I think you're right. And uh, hopefully, you know, Canada will think will be Canada and many other countries i suppose we will think about you know the need to to roll those back you know I, I recall arguments around ensuring that that fair dealing and some of the other user rights or exceptions were accounted for with the anti-circumvention rules uh, as well as of course some of the kinds of issues we've been talking about you know what why don't we just conclude with this you know at a certain level you know one reads the book and here's what you have to say and it's it, it's hard to see what the counter argument is i mean there's there's clearly we're all consumers we're affected Uh, we've got important sectors you know in some instances you know life and death type issues being affected by this the environment is being affected by this Uh, there seems to be little reason not to address some of these issues and yet it's been really slow going Um, do you have a a reason for that is it is it the companies themselves that their self-interest notwithstanding their their professed concern for environmental issues, let's say, uh, is such that the bottom line means that they'll, they've lined up to oppose some of this? Is it some of the copyright groups that don't want to see any of those protections chipped away, even if it doesn't make sense to apply it in this context? What do you think accounts for uh, the really both, the I guess, the initial inclusion of these provisions in this way, but even more how it's been a real struggle to see them rolled back in a, in a sensible manner?
1: Yeah, I think the opposition to making these sorts of changes comes from the the, the sort of uh, expected corners. Um, as I said before, companies have a very clear financial interest in maintaining control over repair markets. Um, there are absolutely certain copyright interests that are categorically opposed to any reform of anti-circumvention rules. Um, I think out of some misplaced fears that that might, um, you know, eventually uh, weaken the kinds of controls they have over, you know, video games and other kinds of of entertainment content. But I I think it's also important to point out the way, and I agree with you, this has been slow going for a number of years, um, but I think the momentum is really starting to shift uh, around this issue. And in part, it's because some of these same companies that have been the biggest opponents of the right to repair are really starting to see the writing on the wall. Uh, Last year in the United States, uh, we had right to repair bills that were introduced in 27 states. Um, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, at the urging of the Biden administration, has taken a much more aggressive stance on repair. In Europe, we've seen France introduce mandatory repairability scores for certain products. We've seen rules under the Eco Design Directive uh, that have started to impose um requirements on the way that products are actually designed we see you know canada and australia are both studying the impact of, of repair restrictions with an eye to some sort of reform uh, we see shareholders that are that are pressuring companies to make changes and companies are changing um, You know, we've seen announcements from Microsoft, from Sonos, and I think most importantly, Apple, that they are willing to make changes around some of these policies. So, Apple, as I'm sure um, lots of your listeners have seen, announced a couple of weeks ago that it's now going to start selling batteries and screens and cameras directly to consumers uh, for iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 models. Um, That's a huge concession. Right? And, and certainly a step in the right direction, but it was motivated by a worry about impending regulation. Um, so I remain kind of skeptical about what Apple's motivations are. Um, you know, we don't know what those parts are gonna cost. We don't know, um, you know what hoops consumers are gonna have to jump through in order to, to get them. But I do see some encouraging signs that, that things are moving in, in the right direction. Um, It's happening slowly, it's happening as the result of sustained effort from from lots and lots of uh, advocates in this space, but I think it's also a sign that, you know, this is like a a fight that's not only worth having, but one that's actually winnable. Um, And for those of us that have been, you know, paying attention to issues in the copyright space, uh, winnable fights uh, don't come around all that often, and so um, I'm, I'm, you know, really excited to see how this one plays out.
0: Yeah, no, this is true, but, uh, you know, I think we've seen that momentum and I think that uh, your forthcoming book really adds important fuel to the fire. It gives that kind of context that for some may be missing from both a historical perspective and and provides a really persuasive, makes a persuasive case for for why this is a trend that needs to continue both in terms of what some of the companies are doing, but then even more what the, the need for legislatures and politicians to step up as well. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: It was a real pleasure. Thanks.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at Pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites pod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS, at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.